Imagine you find yourself on a boat in the middle of the ocean on a beautiful, sunny day. The waves are rolling around you, and your boat rocks back and forth, well-built and sturdy against the sea. Suddenly, dark clouds start to form overhead, and the waves become harsher. As they batter the sides of your ship, small cracks begin to appear in the hull. You quickly patch these with available materials, but larger holes develop and water leaks in. You soon find yourself out of materials while the water continues to pour in, rising faster with no way to stop it. Caught in a vicious cycle, the ship eventually becomes overwhelmed and is dragged to the bottom of the sea. This image is not unlike what we see in disseminated intravascular coagulation, also called DIC. An initial insult, the storm, causes dysregulation of the coagulation system, the ship, leading to a vicious cycle of bleeding and clotting. Today, our patient has DIC, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by medical residents meant to serve you better on the boards and on call. Today's episode is titled In the Eye of the Storm, an approach to disseminated intravascular coagulation. Time for our minute physiology. Disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, is a dysregulated systemic activation of the body's coagulation system. It is always secondary to an underlying process and should accompany an underlying diagnosis. Common causes of DIC include sepsis, malignancy, trauma, and other systemic conditions, including pancreatitis and placental abruption. An uncommon cause of DIC includes acute promyelocytic leukemia. It is important to consider this cause because treatment involves urgent administration of all transretinoic acid, ATRA. If you ever diagnose DIC, remember to identify the underlying cause. It may help you uncover an underlying illness in a patient who otherwise looks stable or well. The underlying mechanism for DIC links together the coagulation, endothelial, and immune systems, which are intimately linked through cytokine signaling. The principal mediator of DIC appears to be tissue factor which is primarily released from monocytes and endothelial cells in the context of DIC. Tissue factor then initiates the extrinsic pathway of coagulation, ultimately leading to thrombin and clot formation. Platelets are activated by thrombin and augment this response by forming a membrane platform for additional coagulation factor activation. Finally, endothelial cell activation leads to the release of excess von Willebrand factor that potentiates platelet adhesion and aggregation. DIC is an independent risk factor for mortality and represents a unique balance between bleeding and thrombosis. End organ damage is often mediated by microvascular ischemia, but major organ hemorrhage can also occur. This bleeding is secondary to the opposing effects of thrombin on the coagulation system, as well as coagulation factor depletion. DIC is thus a unique balance of coagulation that can have diverse presentations. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. DIC is relatively common and should be considered in the evaluation of any patient with an abnormal CBC or coagulation studies. Special attention should be made to critically ill patients who are at high risk for DIC. As with any patient, your first step is to assess their stability prior to proceeding. Is the patient alert and oriented? How are their vitals and ABCs? Ensure that the patient is stable prior to moving forward with your assessment. A detailed history is important in order to understand the potential trigger for DIC and any associated manifestations. Ask about fevers, chills, and symptoms of infection that could point you to a septic source. Recent surgery or trauma should also be clarified, as these are common triggers. 
For obstetric patients, ensure that you ask about abdominal pain, vaginal bleeding, or dyspnea. These will help to identify causes such as HELP syndrome, placental abruption, or amniotic fluid embolism. Finally, ask about history of malignancy, including staging and previous treatment. The physical examination for DIC is limited but important. You may see ecchymoses, petechiae, or purpura. For example, meningococcal septicemia can present with purpura fulminans as a manifestation of DIC. You should also pay attention to any sources of bleeding, including hematuria, hemoptysis, or neurologic deficits that could represent intracranial hemorrhage. Lastly, inspect the limbs and pulses to ensure there is no limb ischemia. Careful though, you can have symmetric peripheral gangrene with pulses, so a thorough visual examination is important. Time for the workup. Laboratory investigations form the basis of DIC diagnosis and can also be used to identify subclinical or asymptomatic forms. DIC is usually suspected from an initial CBC when there is evidence of thrombocytopenia. Be careful because thrombocytopenia can be seen in a lot of different conditions, including those that cause DIC. Teasing apart whether a thrombocytopenia is due to underlying sepsis or DIC can be challenging, but there is a useful score that we will come to in a minute. On the CBC, it is also important to identify a new or worsening anemia, as this can alter the differential diagnosis. A peripheral blood smear should be obtained to rule out fragmented red blood cells, aka schistocytes, which can be seen in small numbers in DIC, but would be concerning for a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. These are hematologic emergencies and include thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, i.e. TTP, and hemolytic uremic syndrome, i.e. HUS. Basically, schistocytes on a blood smear equals urgent hematology consultation. Additional coagulation markers that are useful for diagnosing DIC include D-dimer, fibrinogen, and INR. D-dimer is a breakdown product of fibrin and is usually significantly elevated in overt DIC. On the other hand, fibrinogen can be very low as it is being consumed to make fibrin clots. The INR may be similarly elevated with consumption of all the coagulation factors. Finally, you should order a beta-HCG in people of childbearing capacity to rule out pregnancy. These four factors, platelet count, D-dimer, INR, and fibrinogen level, form part of a DIC score created by the International Society of Hemostasis and Thrombosis. This score can be found online and uses the values above to determine the likelihood of a DIC diagnosis. If you are ever unsure, you can also consult a hematologist for expert opinion. Please be aware that a normal fibrinogen does not rule out a diagnosis of DIC. Fibrinogen is an acute phase reactant, and one would expect the level to be significantly elevated, rather than normal or reduced in critically ill patients. Finally, it is important to rule out other causes of thrombocytopenia. We have already mentioned the microangiopathic hemolytic anemias, including TTP and HUS. Other considerations are heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, HIT, hepatic cirrhosis, and HELP syndrome. HIT usually occurs in the setting of heparin use and involves thrombocytopenia with arterial or venous thrombosis. A 4T score, as in the letter T, can be used to determine the likelihood of HIT. Cirrhosis can present with many of the features of DIC, including elevated INR and thrombocytopenia. INR in this case is usually due to reduced synthesis by the liver, whereas thrombocytopenia results from splenic sequestration or bone marrow suppression in the context of alcohol use. This can be a challenging differential, but generally D-dimer levels will not be as elevated, and the platelet count will be stable from the patient's baseline. 
Coagulation factor assays, factor 8 in particular, can help differentiate an elevated INR from liver disease and DIC. Lastly, HELP syndrome is an obstetrical emergency that can result in a coagulopathy mimicking DIC. However, these patients will often have frank hemolysis and elevated liver enzymes to confirm the diagnosis. Time to talk about treatment. Unfortunately, there are no definitive treatments for DIC. Given that DIC is a heterogeneous disease, therapy is focused on supportive management and fixing the underlying trigger. DIC will usually resolve after treatment of the cause, for example, sepsis. However, in some situations, DIC can persist even after the trigger is removed. As we mentioned previously, acute promyelocytic leukemia is a unique trigger of DIC that has a specific treatment, namely all transretinoic acid. Replacement of coagulation factors or platelets is not indicated in patients unless there are signs of overt hemorrhage or a plan for an invasive procedure. Remember, don't treat numbers, treat the patient. Some guidelines consider targeting a platelet count of 50 in bleeding patients and 10 in non-bleeding patients who are at high risk. But again, this is all based on the specific clinical scenario. Cryoprecipitate and fibrinogen can also be considered, and specific targets for different situations can be found in resources such as Bloody Easy. Lastly, there are several experimental therapies that have been investigated in clinical trials, including antithrombin concentrate and activated protein C. These work by restoring the natural anticoagulant levels in the body to counterbalance the procoagulant phenotype in DIC. However, there are mixed results from various studies and currently no definitive benefit. They may offer some benefit in specific subpopulations, but this remains to be determined. Let's finish with our medicine minute. A fun fact regarding DIC. This clinical entity has actually been in the medical literature for almost 200 years. In 1834, a French scientist named Dupuis injected brain matter into animals and found that they rapidly died from widespread thromboses. The underlying mechanism involves excess release of tissue factor, which is plentiful in organs such as the brain and placenta. The significant mortality associated with DIC likely also led to its alternative name, death is coming. Many years later, we have a better understanding of DIC, but continue to explore novel treatment modalities to improve survival. That's all for today. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled In the Eye of the Storm, an approach to disseminated intravascular coagulation. This episode was written by Dr. Stefan Jevtich, PGY1 in Internal Medicine, and reviewed by Dr. Siraj Mithawani, hematologist, and Dr. John Neary, general internist. The Internet Work Series is created by Allison Lai and developed by Zara Morali and Leah Karyanopoulos. This episode was recorded and produced by Leah Karyanopoulos. Music production by Lakshman Vasanthamon and clips from Lufiman.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out www.theinternetwork.com for associated resources and infographics. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.